Cities produce more than 60% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Big cities get a lot of attention, but most household emissions in the U.S. actually come from communities outside urban cores, making them critical players in climate mitigation and climate justice. City Climate Corner explores how these small and mid-sized cities are tackling climate change and moving toward an equitable and sustainable future. I'm Abby Finnis. And I'm Larry Kraft. We're co-hosts for City Climate Corner. Hey, Abby. Hey, Larry. I hear that we have a new Patreon supporter. We do. Gene Wu. We are eternally grateful. And if there are others out there that would like to help us with this podcast, we would be eternally grateful to you as well. You can just go to our website and click on the support us link. There's uh, ability to become a Patreon supporter. And there's also a store up there for some cool merch. Yeah, we really appreciate everybody who's supporting. And, you know, if you're not, we appreciate you listening. And remember to continue to hit that ratings button uh, and leave a review if you feel so inclined. Awesome. So, Abby, this week, what are we doing? Uh, We are going to Heidelberg. So Heidelberg was one of the stops on my European adventure. And I went there because I was really interested to visit the Bonstadt, which is a planned carbon neutral district that they've been building out and it's nearing completion. So it's pretty cool. And that's what we're going to talk to Vipkit about today. But I wanted to just kind of give everybody a little bit of a visual of Heidelberg. Mm, Okay. Yeah. Let's hear it. It is one of the most beautiful communities nestled up against a river, the Necker, that I've ever visited. I like that word, nestled. Yes, (laughs) that is how it is. It's just like, it's got the old village that sits beneath this castle, which the Heidelberg Castle has been kind of a famous tourist spot. And in the late 1800s was a spot where poets and philosophers and writers would go to kind of hang out. And one of the most famous authors who who was there is Mark Twain. Mm. Yeah, he's quoted on the tour. If you take the castle tour, they quote from his book, A Tramp Abroad, where he describes the castle in detail. So across the river from the castle, there is a path called Philosopher's Way, where some of the professors from the university would go and kind of walk and stuff. And so it's kind of a cool little spot across the river where you get a view of the old city and, and the castle above. And I was sitting up there looking down upon the community. And there's also, you know, a couple of major roads that go right along the river these days. And I was sitting there and I was like, man, I bet Mark Twain didn't have to listen to all of these cars go by. And so when I got back, I did end up borrowing a tramp abroad from the library. And I just want to read a quick little excerpt from that. Ooh, I didn't know we were going to be having a little cultural enrichment here. The first night we were there, we went to bed and to sleep early. But I awoke at the end of two or three hours and lay a comfortable while listening to the soothing pattern of the rain against the balcony windows. I took it to be rain, but it turned out to be only a murmur of the restless Necker tumbling over her dikes and dams far below in the gorge. So there is the answer to my question. I mean, obviously there weren't cars when he was there, but he could hear the river from up about the same elevation that I was of. Just thinking about the things that we miss because of the volume of cars. Mm. All right. 
Well, I'm now extra excited to hear this interview. Yeah. Anyway, Heidelberg is a lovely little community. The old town is not near the Bonstadt exactly, but both worth a visit. So let's give it a listen. Let's do it. Today we are speaking with Bibka Grosskopf, a representative of the Office of Environmental Protection, all the way from Heidelberg, Germany. Welcome to City Climate Corner, Bibka. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your role with the city? So I've been uh, working for the city for almost four years. I started directly from university. And funnily enough, the one of the projects I actually work on, I studied in universities, which is the Bahnstadt project. I also run a few funding programs for retrofitting um, and photovoltaics. And uh, yeah, we're basically just there to uh, bring climate protection to Heidelberg. I've heard about Heidelberg from Abby. She raved about it and saw the photos and stuff she did on Instagram. But I'd love to hear more about Heidelberg from your perspective. So can you describe the city for us a bit? It's a 1,600,000 inhabitant city uh, located in southern Germany. And we're located right at the Neckar River. We're quite close to Mannheim, which is where the Neckar River and the Rhine meet. And we're actually located between the Rhine Valley and the Odenwald, which is a mountainy area in a way. Heidelberg actually just consists of a lot of smaller towns that over the years grew together and essentially got all pulled in. I live in a very small part uh, of Heidelberg, which used to be its own town, but now is a bigger part of Heidelberg. So it kind of feels more like not a huge city, but a bunch of small cities that are very close together. And it's actually good to travel by bike uh, because everything is like fairly close by takes me 20 minutes to go to work, which is in the old town in Heidelberg. Do those towns kind of maintain a little bit of their own identity, even though they're within larger Heidelberg? Yeah, they do. They are all um, now just districts, and they have their own district representatives. They also have their own like festivals and stuff and their own traditions. That's awesome. I feel like my brother my brother went on this trip with me and we just felt like everywhere we were going, we were either a day late or a day early for <laughs> these festivals or different things happening in different communities. There's a lot going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, I spent most of my time in, in the old city while I was there, which is just stunningly beautiful. But the main reason that I wanted to go to Heidelberg was for this carbon neutral district which was at one point one of the largest in the world, um, the Bonstadt. Can you tell us why is it called Bonstadt? What was the site before this development? The Bonstadt district, well, it is situated where uh, the old railway freight yard used to be. Heidelberg used to have a railway freight yard, uh, and it doesn't anymore because a lot of German cities are starting to retrofit them because they don't use them anymore. We have a big one in Mannheim, which is 15 kilometers from Heidelberg. So we just use that. 
Heidelberg doesn't need the freighter anymore. And then it was essentially empty and unused for a lot of years. And back in the 90s, the city decided to do something about this and then made plans to retrofit this brownfield and build essentially a new district there. There are some existing buildings, but most of the buildings there have been built in the past 10 years. Yeah, and it's clear that a lot of it is pretty modern, but for maybe the the depot buildings. Can you talk about some of the features of the site? So what are some of the sustainability features? What makes it a carbon neutral district? My colleagues uh, got involved very early on in the planning process. Um, I think it was in the early 2000s. They called a planning company and they were like, okay, so we're developing this district. We would like to have a plan on how to develop it as efficiently as possible and to have the buildings to be as efficiently as possible. And what this company found out was that the building standard should be the highest, most efficient building standard which we have in Germany, which is the Passifal standard. And then more importantly, which was something that is still curious to a lot of people who've come to the Bahnstadt district, is we use district heat. And that's not a typical thing to use uh, for a passive house because they have such a low need for heat. But because it's such a dense district and it's like all these little building blocks, we just transfer the heat to the building blocks rather than the individual buildings. And that's why it works. I was struck by some of the other features. It is dense. That allows people to live and work and move close to where they are. Maybe talk about some of the different uses that are there, because it's not just a residential use, right? Yes. It is situated quite close to the uh, main central station and thereby uh, close to the railways. So the way it is structured is the residential areas are further away from the railways and they are more situated along the green area and then we have more mixed uh, use as we come in closer to the railway station and then more like offices and labs and shops and stuff so we have a mixed use the borderline in a way along the fields is purely residential and then you get into the district it's more like mixed use you have shops in the lower lower stories and then residentials in the higher stories. It's a big site, right? It's not just like a few buildings. It is. It is 100 hectares. We often say it's almost the same size as the old town. And it doesn't compute with me that that is the same (laughs) size. Interesting. Yeah. No, I thought just walking around with you and seeing the different features and the pathways and stuff that are available. And there's a school there, there's kindergarten. You can have families there and get to everything you need. I think there was like a dentist's office, grocery stores, all within this. Yeah, I think the first residents that moved into the district uh, moved in, in 2012, I believe. And back then, it was still kind of like 
in development. So the people were essentially living on the building side, which is difficult. They didn't have a supermarket. There was no drugstore. There was basically nothing because the first things they built were residential buildings. Mm -hmm. Over the years, you can see it develop into more of a district where people actually are there and they shop there and they have their lives there rather than going out of the district to do all their day-to-day stuff. And it's nearly complete, right? It's not quite complete. When does the city expect it to wrap up? I think the plan was 2023, maybe. I honestly don't know the exact timeline. So in my office, I have a big plan of the whole uh, district. And every time I look at it, I'm like, there's still so many empty slots. And a lot of planned projects were stopped due to COVID, due to financial reasons, uh, and are now just picking up again. So we have some big projects still in development. We have some blocks that are still empty, some that still have old buildings on it that might be retrofitted or torn down and rebuilt. There's still a lot of potential. We have 5,600 inhabitants right now, and it was planned originally, I think, for uh, 6,000, and they're now going more to like 6,600 inhabitants once it's finished. And they're still building residential buildings as well because there's such a high need in Heidelberg. I was reading about this, and uh, one of the things that I noted was that uh, the cost to build this wasn't dramatically different than the cost to build, I guess, a non-carbon neutral thing, but the operating costs will be much lower. Did I read that right? Yeah, there's a lot of controversy about uh, whether it is more expensive to build a passive house as opposed to a standard German building, but because standards for building material have progressed over the years and it's become more common to use three-pane window glass and highly insulated windows. It's become, I wouldn't say inexpensive, but it's become more affordable to build a highly efficient standard. Of course, people still complain about the whole thing being expensive, but it is because buildings costs have risen over the past 10 years. So in the beginning, a square meter of like apartment uh, in the Bahnstadt would cost, I think, about 2,600 euros per square meter. And we're now at over 5,000. Costs have definitely risen and they will continue to rise. But that's not just because of the passive house standard, but rather because... It is so expensive to build a new. Hey, we're taking a quick break to say if you like what you're hearing, please support us. You can do so by clicking the support us link on our website at cityclimatecorner.com or you can go to our store and get some cool merch. You mentioned district heating, which... I know a little bit about, but not a ton. So how does that work? So we've been using district heating in Heidelberg for a long time. It sounds confusing because we call it district heating, but we essentially call like a huge uh, long distance heating grid with 
both Mannheim and Ludwigshafen, which are the two bigger cities close by. And so it's a big heating grid, uh, which carries very uh, high temperature water, which then gets transported into the houses. The heat gets transferred to the heating water inside the house and then gets transported back. So you're transporting really, really hot water over long distances. Our uh, municipal utility is actually working uh, together with the other two municipal utilities and also neighboring uh, smaller towns, uh, which are all connected to the grid. And they're together working on greening or essentially making uh, the district heating carbon neutral. Because right now, we consider it 50% carbon neutral, but uh, only 20% of it is actually renewable energies. So 20% of this comes from combined heat and power plants, which run on biogas. Then we have one big wood chip fire plant, which also can be is combined heat and power. That's the 20% that are renewables. And then we have the other 30%, which comes from what do you call it? Heat retrieval, I think, from waste combustion. Heat recovery. Heat recovery from waste combustion, yeah. So we have a big uh, waste incineration plant in Mannheim. To understand why we consider this carbon neutral, I have to explain the recycling system in Germany. So in Germany, we divide into plastics, anything that is packaging. We have paper, we have uh, organic waste. And then we have waste, which is non-recyclable. The other three get recycled and the non-recyclable waste either gets turned into landfill, which is not as usual in Germany anymore. There are some parts in Germany where it's forbidden to uh, do a landfill. So most of it gets incinerated or transported off somewhere else outside of Germany, which is highly problematic in a way. So... Uh, what we do is our non-recyclable waste gets incinerated, but then there's heat there, which we can then use, put it back in the district heating grid and use it for heating houses. And in Heidelberg, we have about 50% of residential houses uh, connected to the district heating grid. One of my colleagues is actually working uh, on a municipal heating plan, which will work on how will we distribute different types of heating uh, to residents in the coming years that we're trying to refrain from using fossil fuels and such. So the two main parts are going to be district heating and distribute as much district heating as possible, and then also go the way of uh, trying to distribute more uh, heat pumps, which is the more like individual solution. If you got a lot of people connected to a district heating grid, you can easily just change the input and make the heating for a lot of people carbon neutral. One of the problems that many cities have, <laughs> including the one where where we live here, is that we don't have control over the building code. Um, is that the same problem in Heidelberg? It is in a way. 
We did it in a very clever way. There is a standard building code in Germany for new buildings. So what we did is um, when the district was being developed, the city of Heidelberg formed a development company or development agency, and it's combined the local bank, I think, the local housing company, and then also the state uh, bank. They were the ones who were essentially buying up the lots in the Bahnstadt district, preparing them for a building and then selling them to investors. And through development laws, the city of Heidelberg was able to put in requirements into the contract when selling the plots. So what we did is into the contract, we put, if you want to build on this plot, you have to build it according to passive house standard. People who don't want to pay a fine will build a passive house on the lots. You can do it in different ways, but it's very complicated building regulations in Germany. And I had like four years to get into it. (laughs) Well, yeah, I know here we can't do things different than the state code unless they're asking for something special from us or unless we're putting a little bit of public financing in it, then we can. Yeah, we put in public financing, but we teamed up with the building companies and two banks who had the money and who are like, okay, we're going to do this for you. Hey, so how how was the decision made at the beginning to say, hey, we're going to make this carbon neutral? It must have been in the early 2000s. I wasn't there yet. This, I think, uh, is mainly due to the fact that my boss was very adamant about it. And then our uh, now Lord Mayor was deputy mayor back then for the environmental area. So he was very adamant about it. And then the then Lord Mayor, she supported it as well. So we had the political support Mm -hmm. from those two parties. Yeah. Heidelberg also has some goals as a city too, fairly aggressive goals in terms of emission reductions. Where to start? So Heidelberg has been working on climate protection since 92, I think. Must have been the conference in Rio. Mm. Yeah. And since then has published several climate protection uh, agreements. The latest is from 2012, I believe. And that was a climate protection concept that was actually funded by the government. And we were one of the first bunch of cities in uh, Germany. This whole like concept of coming up with idea and it's called Masterplan 100% uh, climate protection. We've actually been renewing this the past couple of years. So we get, I think, bi-yearly CO2 emission results from uh, the, the research company that works with us on the climate protection plan. So mainly uh, the goals from the master plan are to reduce CO2 emissions until 2050 by 95%. We have now 
reached the part where we're like, okay, we need to be faster and need to be quicker. I'm actually not quite sure what the latest is, but there are goals to reach near lower carbon emissions more effectively until 2030. I imagine one of the other reasons for doing this this site is that you can learn and then replicate elsewhere within Heidelberg. Yeah. What opportunities and challenges are there in, in learning and replicating it? We're trying to replicate it as much as possible. We also have a lot of inward resistance. So even within like the municipality, uh, we get resistance from the housing company, for example, who doesn't always want to adhere to a passive house standard because they would rather just build the new housing standard. We're trying to essentially stick our fingers in the cake as much as possible. And we have achieved the requirement for passive house standard in one of the conversion areas. So we have several conversion areas that used to belong to the U.S. Army, which was stationed in Heidelberg, I think, until 2014 or something. So we have a lot of areas where there used to be barracks or um, residential areas for the U.S. Army. And uh, we've since started buying up these areas for development, especially for residential uh, development, but also similarly to Heidelberg, develop entire new districts. In some of these districts, we have the requirement for the pacifier standard as well. In some, we weren't as quick enough. So they're building to the new building standard, which is still better than the non-retrofitted buildings that you have around Heidelberg. Unfortunately, you're building these new houses and they're not going to be retrofitted for the next 50 years. So might as well build them as efficient as possible. Makes sense. And it's not just happening in Heidelberg, but other cities certainly have taken notice of this development and are seeking to replicate it. I think you said that it's no longer the largest and that there's a couple in China maybe that have surpassed. Can you talk about um, some of the cities that have, have taken from here? Yeah. In the very early stages of the Bahnstadt development, we had a lot of interest from uh, especially Chinese city officials, building companies, anything coming to visit. My colleagues did a lot of tours around the Bahnstadt like I did for you. The Passive House is very popular in China, which to me is just like, wow, that's it's more popular, I think, in China than it is in Germany for some reason. I don't understand why it's not as popular because it is from Germany. Right. But the Germans are like, no, we're going to stick to our building codes. So we have several districts in development in China that are entirely passive house districts. There is one district uh, that is actually called the Bahnstadt in China. Do they spell it the same? Yeah. Yeah, you told me that when I was when I was touring with you. They spell it the same and it actually it absolutely has nothing to do with there being like a railway station or anything. <laughs> yeah. But they call it the Bahnstadt because it is based on the Heidelberg Bahnstadt. <laughs> yeah, I love that. 
it's in Gaobaijan, which is, I think, south of Beijing. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you, one, for taking me on such a great tour of Bonstadt, and then also for speaking with us today. But before you go, what advice do you have for cities that want to support a similar type of development? Try and find the loopholes, because we only managed to do this because uh, we figured out that if we put it into the sales contract that we could then require investors to build it to a certain building standard. And also, efficiency isn't everything. Right now, we're in development uh, for some other districts, and we're also talking about, of course, gray energy and uh, anything that is inbuilt carbon emissions. So consider that as well. I think gray energy is not a term that we use regularly. Can you describe it? Gray energy, I think, is a German term. I'm trying to find the English term for it. Is it the embodied emissions? And It's embodied okay. emissions, yes. So, yeah, consider embodied emissions. Larry has a very quizzical <laughs> look on his face right now. Yeah, I saw Larry's face and I was like, that was not the right term. <laughs> but, yeah. Embodied emissions is the next step after efficiency. But what is what does embodied emissions mean? It is so if you consider the life cycle of a building, embodied emissions is like all the carbon emissions during production of the any building material and then during construction. And sometimes during a life cycle assessment you would even consider like the emissions needed for eventually tearing down the building. But most people don't want to think about the end of the building. We consider embodied emission any emissions during the construction of the building. Makes you think more about the materials that you're using and how they're made, right? Yeah. We're actually uh, reworking our funding program for citizens right now. And we are going to introduce funding for building uh, with wood, like whole wood construction and also using not renewable, but like regrowable insulation. So anything from wood shavings to, uh, I think there's a company that uses uh, seaweed for insulation. Mm -hmm. So anything like that. And it has a much lower CO2 footprint as opposed to using like styrofoam for insulating. The embodied emissions of the Bahnstadt have never been calculated, but there are a lot of embodied emissions. And we should have looked at like a construction site in uh, in the Bahnstadt because they built a lot of styrofoam and what is it? can't remember. But yeah. There's a lot of stuff that gets put into the houses where you're like, you could do that more sustainably. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really good to see you. All right, Abby, what do you think? What, what are your takeaways? I think my biggest takeaway is just that we can build in a sustainable way. We have the tools, we have the resources, we know how to do it. And it's just really a matter of uh, having that will. You know, in this case, they're using a mechanism through the sale and the contract to stipulate the kind of development that they wanted to see on this site. 
and don't always have that that control over the site in the same way. And I think that we see that here. We see that all over is how much local control do cities have and finding those pathways to do it, which is kind of a hassle. You know, you'd like it to be <laughs> easier to build smart and, and low carbon and uh, more connected. I think the biggest takeaway for me is just that we can do this if we want to. Mm, yeah. I think about development that's happening here in St. Louis Park. And you're right. You have to take the opportunities that are presented to you. You never know when they're going to be there. Mm -hmm. But when there are opportunities, what can you build in? What can you do? I also like how they've used district heating, which is not something I've heard of much. I'm sure it, it happens. That is done in a way that also insulates them from those price swings of fossil fuel energy. Yeah, I think district heating is, is more common in European cities than it is here. I think there's an interesting fact about Minnesota that a lot of smaller Minnesota, northern Minnesota towns were on district heating for a long time and kind of ripped it out and put in natural gas infrastructure. But uh, that's an aside. It's useful to have that infrastructure in place. And as you say, you know, they're being fed their heat and their electricity through biomass and there may be some fluctuations in lumber where you're getting, you know, you're sourcing that, but you're not beholden to the fluctuations in gas prices or um, what's going on with oil. It's kind of a, a resilience strategy, an economic resilience strategy as well. Yeah, I've done some research recently on this and was, I guess not, when I really think about it, not overly surprised, but somewhat that if you look at inflation from last year to this year, 40% of it is fossil fuel related. And then beyond that, I was learning that um, Moody's did some research and their economists said that every period of inflation since World War II was caused by fossil fuels. A side benefit, a co-benefit of getting off of fossil fuels on top of all the health and climate benefits is that we'll remove this inflationary pressure from our economy longer term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the cost of renewables keeps coming down. And obviously, once you're locked into that, you're getting free energy for as long as the equipment lasts. It's a good hedge against inflation. It's a good hedge against dictators. Um, so as we head into winter here, I'm actually really curious about seeing how different communities fare where they're more dependent on heating from these district heating mm. facilities that are fed wood or other non-fossil fuel sources mm. compared to those that are more dependent upon fossil gas and other fossil fuels. Yeah. And one other thing was when she was talking about they're starting to consider and really think about gray energy, mm -hmm. which I haven't heard it referred to that way, but embodied emissions, the emissions that are caused elsewhere by the things we consume and purchases we make. And I think that's a really good thing to, to think about. Tougher to do, but but really good thing to consider. Yeah, I mean, I think that that goes into consideration of what makes uh, sustainable building materials is to think about those embodied emissions right. as well. And we'll hear more about gray infrastructure. I think it's a more common term in, in Germany because we also hear about it in Freiburg as well. Right. And that will be coming up in the future here. So stay tuned. We hope you enjoyed this episode of City Climate Corner. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe and give us a review. 
If you're able, become a monthly supporter through Patreon. As always, you can find more information on this topic and resources from each episode's guests on our webpage, cityclimatecorner.com. If you have an idea for the show, send us an email at cityclimatecorner at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. City Climate Corner is produced by Abby Finnis and me, Larry Kraft, edited by me. Our production assistant is Maggie Morin. Music by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.